Hey, everybody, I'm Charlie, and I'm an alcoholic. And thank you so much, Mr. Bill, for uh, allowing me the privilege to come to Colorama. I've got to, everything that Mr. Bill seems to be involved in, I get uh, a chance to, he just brings me along so he can teach me something, I think. Uh, but I got a chance to be at the Rock, and uh, I got to go to Roanoke uh, in the, this summer, and here we are at Colorama, and uh, it's just a great, what a great venue. And uh, you know the food's good if you're speaking on Saturday night, and it tastes just as good coming up as it does going down. So I don't know. Well, maybe it did, maybe it didn't. Anyway. Uh, I didn't see her, and I hope everybody always asks you, you know, you nervous, you nervous? Well, of course I'm nervous. I'm scared to death. Um, but my ego got the better part of me a while ago, and I didn't see her. I hope she protects my anonymity. But a uh, little girl said, oh, you're the speaker tonight? And I said, yes, ma'am. She said, are you nervous? I said, no, this doesn't bother me a single bit. No, I'm not, not nervous a bit. She said, hmm, why are you in the ladies' restroom? <laughs> Sometimes it just happens. But I am so honored and blessed to uh, be here tonight, sober, in my right mind, and fully clothed. And a little story about this shirt. I was getting to go to the Roanoke Men's Workshop, and uh, the lady that's given me the privilege to love her uh, called me at work. She said, uh, when are you speaking? I said, I think Saturday night. She said, well, I'm going to get you a shirt. And I said, well, I've I got a nice white shirt, but thank you. I don't need a... She said, no, I want to get you a shirt. So... I came home, I'd worked late, and I turned on the light, and here laid this shirt in this pretty little tie. And I said, baby, I'm going to a men's workshop. <laughs> and this thing looks a little pink. She said, it is pink. And I said, well, I don't know about that. She said, well, Charlie, real men aren't afraid to wear a peak. <laughs> oh, okay. So, but I will tell on myself, when I was up there sharing my story, I did have a Harley Heritage Softail Springer T-shirt on underneath <laughs> this. In case we, you know, got into it, I asked him just rip this, rip this peak shirt off and just, Tell the EMS it was just a mad barroom brawl. <laughs> but tonight I don't have have that on. Uh, so, but it's an honor to be here, and I thank you so much. This is not my forte, folks, not at all. Uh, I get to share sometimes, and I never know really what's going to happen except my story. But uh, I never start this without recognizing the people that keep me here on a daily basis. And I, I got to see your hand go up, and I don't know if there seemed to be another one. Because hopefully my story is not full of decades and decades and decades of sobriety. My story is about the Charlie that's sitting out there who can't quit drinking. That's what my story's about. But I never get up here without recognizing the people who has brought me as far as they have brought me. And one of them is my sponsor. His name's David Schaffner. He is Area 16, State of Georgia's delegate. And uh, January 27th, he'll celebrate 19 years of continuous sobriety. My service sponsor is his beautiful wife, Lucille, who is currently DCM of District 5, Zone C, Area 16. And January 1, she'll be 18 years sober. My great-grand sponsor is uh, Butch Otis. August 14th, I went over to his home group and saw him pick up a 25-year chip. And my great-grand sponsor is John DeLoach. He is president.
presently office chair of Area 16, past delegate, 28 years sober in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And Mr. John is just a salt of the earth. Boy, you don't like Mr. John, you push baby ducks in the creek, I tell you. He's just a great, great man. So I say that to tell you I come from good stock. In about 45 minutes, y'all going to wonder what in the world happened to him. But it's not their fault, I guarantee you, because I have done about everything you can do wrong in Alcoholics Anonymous except take a drink. I have been alcohol-free and mind-altering drug-free since I came here. And, uh, but I've done everything else wrong. And I'll, I'll be honest enough to tell you, there's been times I've given up. It's just, what's the use, man? See, I do believe that God will not give me more than I can handle. But let me be straight up with you. Life will. And I have been life on plenty. And it's just, what's the use? But i got a great sponsor. And he puts his arm around my shoulder and he says, Yeah, Charlie boy, but you got to remember, he gives the big crosses to the big houses. And he gives the little crosses to the guys named Charlie. And he kind of brings me back where I'm supposed to do. And he makes me look at myself. And we find a step that I am stomping on instead of applying to my life. But I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love it. And I hope this story will show you in some way the joy of living a day at a time alcohol-free. Now, more than likely, you've got to be an alcoholic of my type. I'm not saying you have to, but uh, I seem to relate with people who are the alcoholics of my type. And it's December 3rd, 1993, and I'm crawling around on my hands and knees in a 7 by 9 cell, and I get the greatest revelation I think I have had up to this date. And I knew without a shadow of a doubt that I couldn't quit drinking. I knew it. I, I wasn't sitting around contemplating it. I mean, I knew what I was in there for, and I knew I was going to stay there a long time probably. But it was just a sense of peace and relief that just came over me. I, I just knew Charlie, you can't quit drinking. Because people had, for a long time, had put conditions on my drinking. And I don't know if they put any conditions on anybody's out there, but they sure did mine. And they'd say things like, you know, Charlie, you're a gifted craftsman. Man, you're meticulous in everything you do. If we want to show off this product, we'll give you this assignment. But it's 7 o'clock in the morning, Charlie, and you reek of alcohol. You can't come to work drinking like that. Man, you get hurt on this job, it'll lock us down. You can't come to work drinking like that, Charlie. And that pint of stoke you just killed in the parking lot ain't helping nothing. <laughs> now, I've been doing public work since I was 15 years old. And I can honestly and truly tell, stand here and tell you, I have never been fired from a job. But I sure have been laid off while they were hired. You know? That particular time, I was, I was a union iron worker and I was, I was a welder. And I'm certified in 12 states. I can weld anything but the crack of dawn and a broken heart, baby. I know something about welding. And I'd get these great jobs. And I'd be walking out the gate. Here comes a guy. And I said, well, they have a layoff. No, they're hiring. There are people fed their families just following me around, I do believe. <laughs> but you cannot work here. You can't come to work drinking like that, Charlie. Just don't come. Then another one kind of gets your attention a little bit. We're having this little get-together this weekend, Charlie, and, and you are a good friend of mine. But don't come back to my house drinking, Charlie. Just don't come, man. Your jokes aren't funny anymore, Charlie. Your intimidation doesn't intimidate anyone anymore, Charlie. You peed my Zaya Bush for the last time, Hammer. 
I don't even want you playing my dog. You burnt the last hole you're going to burn in my couch. Don't come back to my house drinking anymore, Charlie. Just don't come. They want to kind of get your attention. Charlie, just don't come home drinking anymore. Please, just don't come home. You know, I married you. I made my bed. I guess i got to lay in it. But I can't answer these questions anymore. This six-year-old boy is asking Charlie, Mama, how come my daddy don't love me? How come my daddy won't play with me, Mama? Joey's daddy plays with him. How come daddy works all the time? How come you and daddy fuss all the time, Mama? And how come when he sees me, he says, this weekend, partner, is just you and me. Whatever you want to do, partner, is just me and you. Whatever. But it's Saturday morning, and he's not here. Or he hadn't even come home. Mama, I'll be good. How come my daddy don't love me anymore? Just don't come home drinking anymore, Charlie. Please, just don't come home. Well, I got a little walking around since, and I saw the handwriting on the wall. I said, okay, I quit. I quit. About two months later, I quit again. About a month after that, I quit for good. About two weeks after that, I quit. So help me God, I quit. And it's December 1993, and I'm crawling around on my hands and knees in the 709 cell, and I know I can't quit. I know I can't. And if you're new in sobriety, please, it's okay if you can't quit. It's really okay. Our book puts it pretty eloquently, I think. I think they call it the lack of power is our dilemma. I've lost the power of choice in it. That's just the way it is. The physical act of drinking has got nothing to do with it anymore. I know I can't quit. I know I can't. But around the holidays down there in Chatham County, I don't know, I guess they get ready for the Christmas crowd or something, but I had a real good lawyer, and that particular time, I had a bucket full of money. So he took my bucket, and uh, we got ourselves rain, and they cut me loose. Now, I ain't free, but I'm loose. And there's a big difference in being free and being loose. And I go to this house, and house is the appropriate word. Uh, I drank the home away. There was three people that lived there, and mail was delivered there. But trust me, all it was was a house. And I go in this bedroom, and I lock this door, and nobody's coming in, and I ain't coming out. And I do things that maybe some of us has thought about or maybe have done. And it doesn't make for good telling in mixed company, and you probably ain't going to believe it no how, but I'll put it this way. Procter & Gamble has yet to invent a toothpaste or a mouthwash that'll get the taste of browning gun oil out of your mouth. I can taste it right now. That's just where it was. But anyway, I walk out of that room that morning, and my wife was standing at the kitchen counter, and she said, I didn't expect to see you. I said, I didn't expect to be here, to tell you the truth. But uh, I'm done. I'm done. Uh, you just take me to Georgia Regional. That's the state facility we have there. Take me back to Chatham County because i got to have a drink. And I know I promised you I wouldn't do it. I don't know how many times I promised you I wouldn't. And I know what kind of trouble I'm in. But I gotta have a drink. And I don't care if it is eight o'clock in the morning, I gotta have a drink. I'm falling apart. And I didn't seem to bother her a whole lot. And I'm serious as a heart attack here now. Now what? But she reached under the counter and set this book up on the bar there. 
And I looked at it and said, well, what's that? She said, that's a book, Charlie. I said, I know it's a book, but Alcoholics Anonymous, what's that? She said, well, I, I've had it for a couple of years. I said, well, where was it? I ain't never seen this book. She said, I had it in the bill drawer. Well, I didn't even know I had a bill drawer. But I opened this book up, and there's a little inscription on the jacket of it. And it said, the words in this book will bring you peace. And the words in this book will save his life. When he's ready, I'll be there. May God bless you and keep you to the end. David Schaffner, April 1991. Now, I don't know David Shafter. I sure don't know Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't know a whole lot about God blessing people, to tell you the truth. But I just know something's got to be done. She said, Charlie, if you can hang on, and I know I've asked you a bunch of times, but if you can hang on just for a couple more hours, we're going to go see somebody. I said, see somebody? She said, please, Charlie, just... God's sakes, just hang on a couple more hours. Well, I don't know how, but I do. We're in front of this building. We go in this room, sit down, and walks this guy. Got this little clipboard with him. Sits down, introduces himself, and says, I'm the assessor. I said, the assessor? He said, yeah, I'm here to assess you. Well, I don't really know what my net worth is. So we might as well just get on with the assessing here. And he said, uh, Mr. Yow, uh, do you come from a broken home? I said, yes, sir. He said, tell me about that. I said, nah, I don't want to talk about that. He said, no, no, you misunderstand. Well, when did your dad leave? I said, my dad didn't leave. My mama did. He said, well, tell me about it. I said, I don't want to talk about it. I'm not going to talk about that. So he makes a little note on his clipboard. He says, I see by your particular age group, um, you, you got any military background? I said, yes, sir. What branch service are you in? United States Marine Corps. What years? 1966, 1972. Hmm. See any combat? Yes, sir. Tell me about that. I don't want to talk about it. No, 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 Mr. Yow, you're missing the whole point here. We need to talk about this stuff. And I said, I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to talk about that with you. So he makes another little note on his clipboard. He said, well, tell me about your family life. I said, well, I guess we got her ups and downs. And I don't know, a bug flew in her mouth or something. She got the gagging and the coughing. He went and got her a drink of water. He didn't ask me to talk about that. He just made another little note on his clipboard. And he said, uh, Mr. Gow, do you drink? I said, yes, sir. How much do you drink? Well, I'll drink a six-pack every now and then. He said, that sounds like a lie. I said, it is a lie. That's a bald-faced lie. I said, mister, I drink all I can drink all the time. I drink all I can hold all the time. There's got to be one condition and one condition only in my drinking. I've got to be at least semi-conscious. Other than that, I drink all I can hold, all the time. Well, he compiled his notes and said, well, I think we'll just keep it. She, my wife says, good. She gave me a little peck on the cheek, and they just buzzed her right on out the door. They didn't buzz me out the door. 
And they took took me in this room and stripped me of everything but my fruit of looms, man. And gave me this dress to put on. I mean, you tie it in front and tie it in the back. It don't make no difference. You're going to be embarrassed, see? And then they gave me these unifoot slippers. They ain't got no bend in them. You wear them on your right foot or left foot. Don't make no unifoot slippers, see? And I don't know what it is about these places, but man, you hang meat in there. And they said, you all right? And I said, well, I'm kind of cold. And they brought out this fishnet-looking thing. It's like one of those things your grandmother crocheted. I mean, 12-count shrimp go right through them holes. So I'm standing here in this dress and these unifoot slippers and this fishnet wrapped around me, and I'm thinking, now that ain't what I had envisioned. And I'm a great visionary. I come from a long line of visionaries. I was born about 200 miles west of here, a place called Crab Orchard, Tennessee. And uh, I used to call myself a Tennessee hillbilly who has been transformed into a card-toting Georgia redneck. (laughs) But I was critiqued on that and said that is not really politically correct. So I'm here to inform you I am an Appalachian American. How do you like them apples? You get any benefits for that? But my Uncle Buck was a great visionary. He'd get in that Tennessee spring water, and he'd start walking the road, and he had this six-foot log chain that he'd drag around with him. People would say, Buck, what... What are you dragging that log chain around for? Uncle Buck just grinned and said, You can't push a log chain. But this ain't what I had envisioned. And I used to do some great visionary, but everything's got to be just right for good visionary. You got to have the right ambiance, you got to have the right location, everything has to be just right. And where I found to do my best visionary was there in Savannah at the oldest cemetery, Bonaventure Cemetery. Before the looters went in there, you could drive in there anytime you wanted to. And I'd drive to the back of Bonaventure Cemetery, and I'd have whatever I was going to have right there. And I'd turn my country music on low. Got to be low, see? Got to be low. And I'd sit there and start visionary. And I just envisioned tomorrow I'm stepping out in that world and fulfill all my potential. Tomorrow, I'll get me a game plan. Tomorrow, look out, world. Here comes Charlie. Both barrels. Now, the strange insanity of that is, if I got out of my truck and stood on my toolbox, I could see the roof of my house. Now, Savannah, Georgia's got a real temperature differential. Summertime, it can feel 120 degrees with the heat index. Wintertime, it can be 10 below windshield. And I'm out in this truck visionary. I got central air and heat. I got a $2,000 bedroom suit. And I'm out here in this truck. And the neighbors could see me. They asked my wife, what in the world is Charlie doing down the cemetery two or three times a week, all hours at night? What's he doing down there? She'd just shake her head and say, oh, he's visionary again. (laughs) But this ain't what I had envisioned. So they took me in this little room. It had a little bed in it, a little sink, and the rest of it. I saw it was in there. Door opens, in walks Rosie Greer. (laughs) I mean, this dude's about 6'5", about 350 pounds. He's got a copy of Sports Illustrated in this hand and a straight-back chair in this one. And he sets that straight-back chair over in the corner and sits down. says, how are you? Well, I guess I'm all right. He says, I'm the observer. I said, the observer? Yeah, I'm here to observe you. 
I said, you going to sit there all night? He said, I sure am. Aren't you going to get in that bed? And I said, I sure am not. <laughs> so I tightened up my fish net and all night long, Rosie reads Sports Illustrated and I observe Rosie. And they come by and they feed you in these styrofoam bowls and plastic spoons, see? About the third day, they send you up to the top floor for the medical examination. I'm sitting there on that table, and it ain't feeling real good. And walks the doctor. Now, he's an Indian doctor. Now, I ain't talking about a Cherokee or Navajo. He's an Indian Indian doctor. And I ain't prejudiced against Indian doctors. I don't mean you just need to know he's an Indian doctor. Because with his broken English, he's about to tell me what he's getting ready to do. And with my broken English, I'm trying to understand the procedure. And he washes his hands real good. And he reaches over and grabs one of them one-fingered latex gloves and a jar of petroleum jelly and turns around and grins. And I said, now, Doc, I don't know what's wrong with me, but where are you getting ready to hunt? It ain't there. We, we just ain't doing that. He said, but it's part of the procedure. I said, well, it ain't part of this procedure. And I got my little dress tightened up. And he said, well, you'll just have to go get observed some more. I said, fine, I ain't got no problem with it. You go assess me some more, but we ain't doing this. But, you know, after three or four days, a week or so, start making great progress, and they put me out in general population. And I'm walking around in this day room with my dress, my unifoot slippers, my fishnet, trying to find myself. And they say, well, today you go to group. I said, group? See, they don't give you a manual when you come to one of these places. And I don't know what group is, but I'm sitting in this room with all these people. In walks this guy. Don't know who he is. He tells you. He's the counselor. Now, the counselor deals in issues. Man, I'm here in a dress. I ain't got no issues. But he's going around the room. This one guy, the third time he's been in there this year, keeps failing his drug test. He thinks they're just picking on him at work. Our counselor says, that's a real issue right there now. We're going to have to deal with that. This other lady, she's in there to get her meds adjusted. Because the clock on that Volvo just won't stay right. And the pool man won't show up when he says he's going to. Just a lack of abandonment. That counselor said, that's a real issue right there now. And we're going to deal with that. He gets to me, and I still ain't got a good one. He said, well, well, why are you here? I said, oh, oh, well, I can't quit drinking. And it was just like that. Just a hush come over the room. And I heard Tom Brady say it once, because I guess you learned this in counselor school. He said, oh, no. Now, it is true. You have a biochemical genetic disorder affecting the hyperthalamic information control center in your brain. It seems when you ingest hydroxide, it forms acetaldehyde, binds with dopamine, producing tetrahydroisoquinoline, and you lose control. I said, no, sir, I can't quit drinking. <laughs> well, I ain't even ready for group. I'm back out here in the day room. And over here against the wall, they got this little bar. got a sliding glass door on it. And all the guys that's in the fishnets and the dresses and the unifoot slippers are lined up against the wall at the bar. Well, I ain't the sharpest pin in the cushion, but I figured that's where I ought to go. So I'm right over there in line. This little nurse opens that sliding glass window, sits this Easter basket up there on the counter. In this Easter basket, got all these little cupcake holders. And all these little cupcake holders got all these jelly beans in them. 
Every kind of jelly bean a man could think of. Every color, size, shape. And you stay orderly. You don't rush. Because she just serves one at a time. And so we're just elbowed anal canal working our way up there. I get there and she looks at my chart. Says, I see you've been observed, uh, assessed. And I say, yes, ma'am. See you've been observed. Yes, ma'am, more than once. I see you re- have refused medical treatment. I said, well, we don't have to go there, do we? She said, well, you have two of these, two of these, and one of these. So I took two of them, two of them, one of them, gave me a little shot of orange juice, washed it down with it. I said, well, what do I do now? She said, you go back to group. I said, they just kicked me out of group. She said, oh, honey, they won't kick you out now. <laughs> so I'm back in group. And I don't know, it seemed like an eternity, but somebody found a thermostat in that place. Sun, the temperature started rising. Up, off come the fish net. I got this dress hiked up. All of a sudden, I get the second greatest revelation I ever had. My feet don't work. <laughs> and I'm thinking, maybe I got my unifoot slippers on wrong. <laughs> and I can get down to get them off, and I can't get up. And walks the counselor. You won't issue. I got one now, Bubba. <laughs> my daggone feet don't work. He didn't think I was the issue. Well, it's working when I come in here, and it ain't working now. Well, this goes on probably a couple of weeks, man. All of a sudden, I'm standing at the bar one day. The little nurse says, you can't have none of them, none of them, one of them. So I got none of them, none of them, one of them. Gave me a little shot of orange juice, washed it out with it. Went to group. Counselor wants to talk about issues. Might have one. Good. What's that? You know, if I give me a pint of that wild turkey, I wouldn't need them four pills you just took away from me. Because that's the only thing I've found that removes the obsession for me to drink. That's the only thing I've found that removes the obsession for me to drink alcohol. Now, it makes your feet not work, but it's a... You ain't going nowhere. Places like that, and, and the people who works in that profession are angels of mercy. And Clancy talks about the, the disease of perception, and that's exactly what it was. It's not what went on in there. It's what was in here. Those people tried to help me, but in my mind, they just wouldn't listen. They just... Wouldn't, nobody would hear me when I tell you I can't quit drinking. They just wouldn't hear me. All of a sudden, I'm in the big doctor's office. He said, you're a sad case. We, we can't help you. You won't get honest. We ask you how you feel, and you say, with my hands, how do you feel? We ask you to get that stuff out about your mother. You just clam up. We ask you to get rid of that crap about that war. You won't talk about it. We can't help you. I don't know why. I'm getting ready to go to jail. It don't matter. So I tell this stuff. What do you want to hear, man? What is it you've got to hear? You want to know how a 20-month-old baby goes through life wondering, what in the world could I have done to make my mama leave? What in the world can a 20-month-old kid do to make your mama get up and leave? And every time your daddy would get in that jug, he'd say, Charlie boy, don't you ever give your heart to a woman because they'll just rip it out and they'll leave you flopping like a fish out of water. You understand? And I'd say, yes, sir, I understand. But I didn't understand because my mother sent me birthday cards and Christmas cards every year. 
And they all said the same thing. I love you, Charlie. I'm your mother. And I'll always love you. I'm sorry things couldn't work out, but don't you ever doubt that I don't love you. That's what I wanted to believe. And when you're 15 years old, you can't get beat no more. And I'm just like any other animal. You get pushed into a corner. You'll either fight or you'll run away. And I can't fight him. I can't fight him. So he goes to work one day and I run away. And that 300-mile trip that I'm taking, in my mind, I'm going to prove you wrong today, Hoss. Today I prove you wrong. I'm going to walk through that manicured grass, step up on that farmer's porch, ring that doorbell. She's going to come to the door holding a platter of homemade cookies. I'm proving you wrong today. And the cab driver says, this is up. This is it, son. And I walk through this knee-high grass, and I step up on these brick old blocks, and I hit that aluminum storm door. It's got the bottom screen about halfway kicked out. Anybody ever seen one of them? And I step back off them brick old blocks, and she opens the door, and she's holding something, but it's not a platter of homemade cookies. And somebody in the back's hollering, Who is he? Get him out of here! And she steps off those brick old blocks, and she says, What are you doing here? I said, I want to come live with you, Mother. I don't want to live with him no more. I don't want to get beat no more. I don't want to hate no more. I just want to come live with you. She says, I'm your mother, Charlie. I love you. I'll always love you. But you can't stay here. You just can't stay here. And I'm turning around and I'm walking off. And she says, where are you going? But I'm not looking back. The only thing in my mind is that SOB was right. I was going to prove him wrong today, but he's right. I tell that story for one reason and one reason only. Just to tell on myself how sick I was. But through these steps, I'm here to tell you tonight, I had a mother that loved me, period. That's how sick I was. I demanded that she love me the way I wanted her to love me. That is sick. And if there's anyone in here that can relate to any of that about anything, that's sick, man. We demand that they love us the way we want them to love us. But through these steps, I got a mother that loved me. I'm 57 years old. If you add up all the minutes that we've spent together, it probably wouldn't have added up to four years. August of this year, I went and buried her. And when I looked at her in that casket, I knew that my mama loved me, period. And I love her, period. That's what these steps have done for me. Exactly. And I'm telling this doctor, you want to hear about that war, man? you got to hear about it. Now, this is kind of graphic, and I, I don't like doing it, but I've talked to a lot of veterans, and they said, somebody's got to say it. But I'm telling them, you want to know, you got to hear the decibel sound of a three-year-old baby screaming because you just shot her mama. Because her mama just handed the guy you just shared a toothbrush with two hours before a basket full of something. And he's hollering, find my arms, Charlie. Don't you let them take me out of here without my arms. You find them. Somebody's handing somebody else a basket. And I'm saying, I'll find them. I'll find them. But I can't find his arms. And he's screaming, and somebody else is screaming, and the baby's screaming, and everybody's screaming, and you end up shooting the baby too. And you come back to the world, and they hand you a medal and call you a hero, and you walk outside, and they call you a baby killer. 
You're 19 years old. You ain't no hero. And you're not a baby killer either. You just can't find his arms. That's all. Is this therapeutic? Is this what you needed to hear? All you've done is sentence me to another year of nightmares. That's all. Well, I'm wiping the snot out of my nose, and he goes and changes his drawers. He comes back and breaks out this prescription pad and says, you supposed you could be a picket fence, man. And this is the heaviest stuff I can prescribe. You're going to be on this the rest of your life, and you need extensive aftercare. Really? Yeah. And, oh, yeah, your wife said she wasn't coming after you. Your keys are parked outside. God bless you. And I said, God bless you too, doctor. Now, one thing those people did do that I'm eternally grateful for, they took us, they took me to my first AA meeting. And it was a big speaker meeting. Now, I didn't know what it was. They said it was voluntary. You could go if you wanted to. And if you went, you could smoke. And I said, shoot, I'm in. By this time, I was in civilian clothes, but I didn't have any shoelaces. And I had this big orange armband on. And so they loaded us up in a little short bus, drove us over here at this building, put us way up in the nosebleed section. And I'm just waiting for the, say, the smoking lamps lit. I don't know what's going on. But this preacher gets up and says a prayer I never heard. Somebody's talking about some upcoming events. Then they stopped and fellowship a little bit. And we're sitting up there in the up there huffing and a puffing. All of a sudden up walks this big tall drink of water and sticks out his hand and says, My name's David. How are you? I said, Okay, I guess. He said, I know you. I said, I don't think I know you. He said, That's okay, I know you. I've been where you've been. I said, oh, you out on bail too? He said, no, I ain't out on bail, but uh, we'll talk. There was probably 300 people in that auditorium. And he is the only one that walked up those steps and stuck out, stuck out his hands to the guys that had the big orange armbands on and no shoestrings. The only one. I don't know why he did it. I guess it doesn't matter. But he did. And I leave his place, and not up to this date is the last time I think I've contemplated which way I wanted to go. Because I left that parking lot and turned right and went up about a block and a half. I'd be standing right in front of a liquor store. And that guy knew me up one side and down the other. If he saw me coming, he had it packaged. That guy would give me credit because I was such a good customer. He'd let me write hot checks because I was such a good customer. He'd let me forge my wife's signature on the credit card because I was such a good customer. Or if I turned left and went down another block or two, I could go to this building where they're having those AA meetings. I don't know why I turned left. I just did. And I walked in this room, and there was an old gentleman sitting over in the corner. And he looked right into the bowels of my soul. And he said, what are you here for? What's, what's your problem? He said, I can't quit drinking. And his old face just lit up. You thought he won the lottery or something. <laughs> and you know what he said? I can't quit either, son. That's why I'm here. Welcome home. We hear all these stories. I was sitting in a closed discussion meeting this afternoon and heard two or three people say it. The last place they wanted to be was in Alcoholics Anonymous. A bunch of yahoos and a dadgum cult. And I know we're court-ordered here sometimes, and we come from treatment centers and whatever. But this is my story.
It took that one statement, that one ten-second lapse in history to let me know I was home. And I have never looked back since that day. Now, that old man didn't tell me all these profound things that you hear in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And I don't mean to step on people's toes, when, but if it hits home, maybe it's something you can think about, especially those that just raised their hands. He didn't tell me these profound things like, you know, if you didn't drink, you wouldn't get drunk. Really? Yeah, you just don't drink. Really? Yeah, it don't matter if your hind end falls off, just throw her in a wheelbarrow and bring her on up here and just don't you drink. Really? We newcomers, and please take this to heart, we don't need our intelligence questioned. I know I don't need to drink. I know that when I don't drink, I got a shot. But I can't quit. And if you ain't got a defense against it, then I've made the wrong turn, hoss. And if you've got a choice in drink today, good for you. My hat's off to you. Don't look down your nose at me because I can't. I can't bit more quit drinking today than the day I walked in there. Now, there's only one reason why I can't. It's so I can take step one. I'm not saying a 11-step program ain't a good program. But if you've got power over alcohol today, step one's just passed you right on by. Just remember us. Just remember the newcomer. Don't kill us. Give us a chance. Tell us there is a solution, even though you can't quit drinking. And we have found it in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's got nothing to do with willpower. It's got nothing to do with your sex, your age, your financial status. See, that old man hadn't had a drink in over 42 years when he told me that. But he had seen too many Charlies walk in there. Too many. And we went in this room, we circled the wagons, and guess what they talked about? Not the pool, man. They didn't talk about drug testing. They didn't talk about my mama. They talked about drinking. Not so much drinking as a solution you can find when you are powerless over alcohol. And not one of them insulted my intelligence. I sat right beside a man that did 18 months on death row for killing the man in the blackout. He's real, and I sit in meetings with him all the time. And on the other side of me was this lady too pretty to be an alcoholic. And she talked about giving her kids up and turning to prostitution to support her habit. And I was right there. I was home. And they was gracious enough at the end of that meeting to give me a little white chip. I didn't know they bought them by the pound. I just thought, <laughs> I just thought they manufactured one because here comes Charlie. Better get him one. I hadn't ended steps yet, see. But I asked Mr. Bob when we was walking out, I said, what do I do now? And this was at noon. He said, at 5.30, we're going to talk about it again. You be here. So at 5.30, I came back. And we talked about it. 6.30, I said, what do I do now, Mr. Bob? He said, at 8 o'clock, we're going to talk about it again. You be here. I'm going home. <laughs> I said, okay. 8 o'clock, I was there. Guess who was sitting up in the front row? That long, tall drink of water came up there and stuck out his hand. 
Now, I've got this $38,000 worth of intelligence, and I done sat in two AA meetings. So I swander on up there to the front, and I said, David, I need me a temporary sponsor. Son, it looked like I slapped him in the face of a dirty mop. He said, let me tell you something, Hammer. I don't do temporary. <laughs> do you come in here for relief, or do you come in here for recovery? Now, I didn't know the difference in the words, but I knew the right word to say. <laughs> and I said, I came in here for recovery. And he handed me a pamphlet on questions and answers on sponsorship. He said, you be at my house Saturday night at 7 o'clock. 7 o'clock I was there. We went upstairs. He basically told me his story. I told him about my upcoming court dates. That's about all I could share. And I think we listened to a tape. We got the book out. And we took step one, step two, and step three that night. And I'm on fire. I'm on fire. And we walked down the stairs, and I said, Give me assignment, David. What you want me to do now? Give me assignment. What you want me to do? What you want me to do? I thought he wanted me to read a chapter or something. And he put his hand on my shoulder, and he gave me the greatest assignment I've ever had in my life. He said, Charlie boy, start being nice to people. It ain't never too early to start being nice. And that's exactly what these 12 spiritual principles are about in these steps. It takes these principles for me to be nice to you. It takes the honesty, hope, and faith, and courage, and integrity, and willingness, and humility and discipline and brotherly love and perseverance and awareness and love and service. It takes those principles for me to be nice to you because when I'm nice to you, I reconnect with you. And when I reconnect with you, I reconnect with my God. And that's all He's ever wanted me to do. I have been disconnected from something I should have never been disconnected from. And I know that I don't need to be drinking. You know, the first time I ever heard that, I was 16 years old and I was sitting beside a, behind a two-inch piece of plexiglass. And my grandmother was on the other side. And she said, Charlie, if you wasn't drinking that stuff and doing that stuff and running around with those people, you wouldn't be in here. And I said, yes, ma'am, I know. Charlie, if you wasn't drinking that stuff and doing that stuff and running around with them yahoos, I wouldn't be spending my retirement trying to keep you out of the penitentiary. And I said, yes, ma'am, I know. We newcomers know. We know. And we don't worry about the first drink. I don't. I had that first drink over five, four decades ago. You can only have one. It's the next one that's going to punch my time clock. And that's the one I need a defense against. The next one. And if you're new here, it's the next one that's going to get you. Whatever happened up to this point in my life was the best it's ever going to get. And I didn't need people dying or people going out and drinking again to come back and tell me that. I knew that in that 7 by 9 sale. I knew that. Not that I'm some kind of ego-driven fool that knows everything. I don't know Jack Diddley reason I got a sponsor that has led me through the 12 steps of recovery. I had to have. But I got busy in those steps. And I'll tell on myself, I finished that fourth step, and it was fearless, and it was thorough. But I turned the page, and I read that little piece in there that said, this step could be postponed. 
And I'm thinking, well, I may just ride on this spiritual hilltop a little while. We over there where we meet at the clubhouse and we got around. One night David just walked, he was in front of me. He turned around and he looked at me like old Mr. Bob looked at me. He said, you know, Charlie, it don't have to be with me. But if you don't do it, you're going to get drunk. And he turned around and walked off. And I knew he knew what he was talking about. Now, I'm not saying this is the way to do it. This is what I had to do the first time. I called my best drinking partner. I called my best friend. I called my oldest son. And I said, Scotty boy, you need to come over here. We've got to do some talking. And we went out in the backyard, and I tried to explain to him what I was going to do. And he didn't understand, and I said, I don't understand either. But, Scotty, I'm living in that prison of terror. And I'm breathing that stale, musty air of bewilderment. And I'm sleeping on that stone, cold, hard bed of frustration. And I'm existing on those crumbs of despair every day, Scotty. And I don't know if there's any clemency in this, but I just know I've got to do it. And I told him every despicable thing his daddy's ever done up to that point and the best I knew how. And I did not list assets. I'm sorry. I don't think what little assets I got are blocking me from the sunlight of the Spirit. I have yet to ask my loving God to become willing for Him to remove my assets. Maybe I'm missing something. I don't know. But we finished, and he cried, and I cried, and I went and did steps six and seven. Scotty went and got drunk. That summer he got married, and I got to be his best man. And my ex-wife and my husband-in-law was coming down. (laughs) And guess what? They're on the list. So after the reception... I get them out in the front yard where we've got some working room, see. And I said, I just want to take full responsibility for my actions for all these years. And anything I can do to balance these books, I'm willing to do. She said, why are you doing this? And I said, well, I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's just something we've got to do. And I just want you to know, it's got to stop. And I'm wrong. She said, y'all got that chip system down here in Georgia? I said, oh, yeah. And I pulled out my little gold chip, my little six-month chip, and I gave her the whole lowdown. So if you want to surrender to win, and I'm just, I would. She reached in her purse and pulled out a four-year medallion. Son, I was living. I had to go to my sponsor about that. I said, I'm sitting here spilling out my guts of this hussy. I've been sober six months. She's been sober four years. She ain't never said a word to me. And he gave you that sponsor talk. Golly, I hate that. Puts his hand on my shoulder and says, Well, Charlie boy, looks like you didn't make the list. Now, there's a moral to that story. (laughs) Through the grace of a loving God, and if I continue to do what I've been doing, if I can continue to accept the defense against the dream, if I continue to be nice to you, in about 60 days, my home group will present me with a 13-year chip. I sure hope you're applauding the program of Alcoholics Anonymous because it ain't got nothing to do with Charlie. But she's not even eligible for a white one. I can hear her sitting in those meetings. Well, you just don't drink. 
You just don't drink. She's pounding her fist on the bar and hollering, What happened? Where have been all my high resolve? We take these steps, all 12, and continue to try to let them live in our life on a daily basis. The longevity is because they're working, not because i got a choice whether I'm going to drink or not. The only reason I haven't had a drink in almost 13 years is because step one works in my life, and I believe it. I believe it. I believe it right now. I bet they sell liquor cashiers in North Carolina. I am not powerless over my elbow. I'm just powerless over alcohol. But I make membership requirements. I don't want to drink. I really and truly don't want to. Will you please help me? And you have. A lot of things have happened in my little walk here. And I know I'm sitting in a room full of heavy hitters. Mr. Guy with 46 years of sobriety. We was talking about today. Good Lord. 1960. I what, 11 years old? I was still a social drinker back then. <laughs> and Mr. Bill and everybody else. I can only speak as a newcomer. That's all. I'm just a drunk that can't quit drinking. But I know I can get through stuff. Because in December 2002, you get this phone call that if you're a parent, it's always 2 o'clock in the morning. And as soon as it rings, it's got this ominous ring. And your gut's not up. And they said, it's happened. Scotty's flipped the Jeep Cherokee eight times and he's dead. My best drinking partner. Because when he was 16 years old, he'd rather ride around in his daddy's pickup truck and drink whiskey and go to football practice because I was so cool. I was cool, all right. And I said, okay. Okay. I called David and I said, Scotty's dead and I don't know what to do, David. My wife's falling apart and I can't touch her. I don't know what to do, David. It takes a good 25 minutes for me to get to my house, to David's house on a good day. In 15 minutes, he's knocking on my front door. And he walks in, and Lucy walks in, and Lucy holds Connette and lets her cry like a baby for three and a half hours. And David looks at me, and I look at him, and I said, I don't know what to do, David. And you know what he said? Nothing. And Lucy holds Connette, and you know what she tells her? Nothing. Within an hour, my grand sponsor's calling me and says, Charlie, I'll drive you to North Carolina. We'll stay up there as long as we have to. You don't have to do this alone. Did he tell me what to do? He didn't say nothing. And if you're new here, this is why you get a sponsor. They are there. I heard Mr. Beal say it one time in a, in a workshop up in Atlanta. got to have two qualifications to be a sponsor. You got to be at least one step ahead of them, and under no conditions ever agree to go out drinking with them. And I think that is a wonderful policy. But I know there's something more about Mr. Beal, and I know there's something more about David Schaffner. They are there, and they will always be there. And there's nothing more gratifying to an alcoholic of my type to know that they're there. And I went to that, I went to North Carolina, I walked in that house, and she sets this Easter basket up on the counter. And she said, Charlie, you're going to need some of these. And I said, yeah, I know, but no. She said, Charlie, you need some of this. And I said, I know I do. 
but I need God more. Because my God does not come in peel, powdered, or liquid form. Not anymore. And at that time, I'm standing there and I put my eight-year chip in Scotty Boy's hand and I said, just take some of my sobriety with you, Scotty. Because a whole lot of me died the day you died. A whole lot of me died the day you died. It was late and dark one dreary night and he was riding in the rain. This young and that restless outlaw that was aching with pain. And he slumped over his saddle seat and he looked towards the sky and said, God, I just wish I'd die. And he was searching for a place to lay his weary head and he unmounted his mount and he unrolled his bed. And he was searching through the blackened sky and he was looking through his mind and he thought of all the broken hearts that he had left behind. Yeah, young, restless outlaw, you're living too fast. think you better slow down. It's not going to last. Because you see, I've been through it all myself. But now that's all in the past. Well, the outlaw's reign is over. His trails come to an end. You see, he's the kind of man that dies without a friend. Never has that starry night, and he never has that home. You see, the life of the outlaw's life is the same as my own. But times they are changing. And this outlaw's been reborn. No longer fear and hate and resentment is his crown of thorns. It's love and peace and faith in the sunshine and the rain. For this old and wore out outlaw has finally stopped the pain. God bless Alcoholics Anonymous. God bless.